word of God from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God said, sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Well, we are at the final week of this series called The Reason Why. We set out to look at Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and this becomes the conclusion as we finish Genesis 3. Where have we been? To understand Genesis 3 and its conclusion, we do need to spend a little time remembering what we have seen so far. We started with just God. We looked at the very first week of January, who God is in creation. We saw that he is self-existent, that he is free, and that he created out of his sovereign pleasure. And then we got to behold creation that he, that he made through the Spirit and through the Word. And we saw that the creation that he made was good, 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 very good. We got to dwell upon the masterpiece of God. The creation of man and woman to bear the image of God. We saw what a beautiful thing the creation of man was. And what a beautiful responsibility we had. As God created the Garden of Eden, the place of bliss that was made for us to enjoy his presence 
work that is satisfying, a relationship perfectly suited to us in a mate, community where we were known and living completely unashamed. We saw that God intended us to join him in his rest, his beautiful royal reign where we would enjoy him with no fear and in perfect love. And we saw the beautiful creation of marriage to be a man and a woman enjoying perfect union, perfectly made for each other, equal and complementary, given joyous covenantal relations. And then we went into Genesis 3, and over the last two weeks we have seen the terribleness of sin, the condemning nature of blame. And now we end with an unremitting examination of sin's consequences. Genesis 3 tells us why the world is the way it is, why it is not like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, though we see vestiges of those uh, truths still today. But Genesis 3 describes the world that we are in today, and it is entirely reversed from what God created it to be. There's a a popular television show. Uh, I'm going to probably give away whether you're young or old, uh, cool or not, uh, depending on the eye of the beholder, of course, uh, called Stranger Things. Oh, some cool people said yes. So there we go. I'm relating people. I'm relating to the next generation. Uh, Anyway, Stranger Things is this uh, show about these kids who uh, live next to this big scientific lab. And uh, the scientific lab, of course, is doing terrible experiments with reality and with parallel universes. And they open up this parallel universe that is basically a hall of horrors. It's our world, but it's, it's completely evil. It's completely dark. And they call this world the upside down. And the fear in Stranger Things is that this, this other reality, the upside down with all of its monsters and terrors, is going to invade the real world. And so this band of kids, of course, have to save the day. It's a very intriguing show, except that it misses one thing very fundamental. And that is, Genesis 3 tells us we already live in the upside down. The horrors of creation, the, 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 the fall and the disasters of this world are already upon us. The world is upside down that you live in. And the biggest mistake that we have to avoid, the biggest lie we have to avoid, is to forget that we're living in an upside down world. To buy into the belief that this world is good as it is, this world is just okay, this world is the best it gets. That is the great mistake that Genesis 3 wants to avoid you going down. To recognize that we live in an upside down world that is wrong and that needs to be put right. And so, Genesis 3 is here to show us how that world is upside down. The world is not as it should be. It is a tragedy. And as I have spent the last several weeks in Genesis 3, I want to tell you, I am depressed. I honestly hate this chapter. 
Because I look at it, I'm like, ah, oh. it's happened. And it's heartbreaking. And it's the reality. It's sickening that this is what we have when we could have had Genesis 2. It is heartbreaking. But it is given to us so that we can understand that we are in the upside down. So that we all unite in one hope. In the hope that God will bring a Savior that will one day make it right side up again. And so as we go through Genesis 3, we are going to look at the awful consequences of sin. But we will conclude with a glimmer of hope. The only hope. And I hope as we get there, you will all be united with me. This is my hope. My only hope. Sin has serious consequences. As we look at Genesis 3, we see that there are six awful consequences that make our world upside down. We're going to go through these fairly quickly. The first awful consequence of the fall is that we live in a world with evil. We live in a world with evil. That was not how it was supposed to be. Verse 15, the first part says to God speaking to the sermon, serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The serpent is going to exist, and the serpent is a representative of Satan and evil, and he is going to exist in this world. And his primary reason for existence is what wakes him up in the morning is to create disaster and evil in the world. To harm, to engage in mortal combat with the people in this world. This enmity between the snake and humankind is describing in poetic form the ageless conflict that has broken out from the fall the relentless evil that we are all aware of that fills up our news channels with 24 hours of reports of it everywhere. We live in a world where evil is always lurking, always on attack. We just have to turn one page in the book of Genesis to chapter 4 where we are told of the first descendants of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the disaster that falls upon them, God speaks to Cain in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain and Abel reveal to us that that conflict that is, that is foretold in Genesis 3 has begun in earnest already in chapter 4, and that it grows and it grows. Sin is crouching at the door. The, the image is that, that it's like a lion ready to pounce at the moment that we're not ready, at the moment of weakness, of distraction. 
Very likely Peter picks up on this when he tells us in his epistle that the, uh, the evil one is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But this is what we live in. We live in a world where evil is, is a compressed spring ready to burst at any moment, in any direction, causing calamity and tragedy. Today, it is everywhere. It's unspeakable. It's senseless. It's gratuitous. It's heartbreaking. And every single one of us has been bit by the snake in being the victim of evil. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that the evil one who is represented in that snake in the garden lives today as the prince of the power of the air, who is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We've all been bit by evil. In fact, the problem of evil in this world has become probably the supreme philosophical challenge to Christianity. How can there possibly be a God of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when we see a world so full and overtaken by evil. We are so aware of evil that it it completely causes us to question whether there could even be a God. Of course, there is a problem with the problem of evil. And that is, for the problem of evil to have any merit, to have any weight at all, there has to be a standard of good. There has to be a real good. There has to be a real righteousness. There has to be a real supreme good in this world for us to be outraged about evil. If we are simply committed to naturalism, then evil is natural. It's not evil. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just what is. And so as difficult, and as challenging and as serious as the problem of evil is, and I, I do not mean to brush it aside, in the problem of evil is a witness that our hearts know there is supposed to be good and that that good has been lost. Second awful consequence that we see in this world is suffering. We look at uh, verse 16 where the where God turns to the woman and says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The punishments that God brings upon the man and the woman relate very much to what they were created to enjoy, what they were created to be. The first commandment given to, to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 was to be fruitful and multiply. Have a lot of children. And the punishment that God gives to the woman for her disobedience is to take that function that was uh, her supreme joy and put in pain. The commission, be fruitful and multiply, is now a source of pain. And some have told me uh, it's extreme pain. Like a man cold. So it's bad. 
I pity all of you women. <laughs> no, it's, it's pain. It represents the introduction of suffering into the world. Before the fall, life was painless. After the fall, life is painful. Life is so painful, life contains so much suffering that most of us can't even put a finger on its root cause. We are harassed by psychological and emotional and physical pain. We can't get to the bottom of it. We can't untangle it. We just live in a place of suffering. Suffering is now part of the human condition because of the fall. Third, we see the consequence of disharmony. Disharmony, in in verse 16, God continues to speak to the woman and says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We remember in chapter 2 that Adam and Eve were created to be a perfect complementary pair. That Eve was created to be a a helper to Adam, to share in the responsibilities and the glories of working the garden. That they were made for each other. That Adam breaks out in worship when he sees his woman for the very first time. That they come together in a relationship that is so complete, it's called one flesh. And yet we are told here that that beautiful design, that beautiful picture is now going to be under constant strain and stress. It is now going to endure an unremitting, twisting torsion of force against it. Where the happy, complementary relationship is now going to be filled with rivalry. That rather than seeking to help, the woman is going to seek to take control. And the man, rather than looking after, caring, and protecting, is going to work at putting down the woman. And so we have a relationship that is broken. The dynamic gets twisted. Marriage used to be the foundation that the world was going to be based on, this this solid relationship of one flesh between man and woman. After the fall, marriage is like two people wrestling on a tilted canoe. It's just trying not to fall out, trying not to overreact. And so we live in a world where one flesh has been ripped apart with divorce, with sexual violence, with reports upon reports of the Me Too movement, of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, of extreme feminism, not the kind of feminism that's just saying, Uh, women have a voice in this, but the feminism that has made masculinity a sin in itself. We have a, a world that is constantly in disharmony. I mean, what, what would uh, comedians be able to talk about if not, if, if we didn't have Genesis three sixteen in our Bibles, 
It's, it's the entire skit for most com- uh, comedians. It's everywhere. I, uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I was reflecting upon it in my own marriage. I thought a lot about Becky. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is just her. No. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, what, I, what I reflected on was my habit of teasing my wife. Teasing my wife about the dinner. Teasing my wife about different upkeep in the house. Not teasing innocently. If I want to get to the heart of it, it's belittling. And I do it so naturally. And I do it wrongly. And that is part of the fall in me. Fourth, the next awful consequence is that we live in a world of futility and despair. Futility and despair. We were made to be in the garden to work and have satisfying, fulfilling jobs that that increased the glory of God across the face of the earth. There wasn't going to be a wasted day in Eden Every day was going to be satisfying and fulfilling. And now we live in this reality as God speaks to Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Now we live in a world where we just seek to stay alive. Where we just seek to survive. Do you know what the good news in the world after Genesis 3 is? You only live once. That's the good news. YOLO. You only live once. You know, live it up. Party hard. Enjoy today. Get all the fun out of it you can because you only live once. But think about what a hollow, despairing motto that is. Fundamental to YOLO is your life is a vapor. It is vanishing away. You are going to lose all the sand in the hourglass and your life will mean nothing. That is what we are running against. And the only answer, the only solution that we have to it is to buy more stuff and do more wild things. But the fact of the matter is YOLO is just reminding you how futile and vain, and so quickly obsolete your life is. Because you're just surviving. You're just a dash in a line between a birth and a death. Eat, drink, be merry. That simply distracts from the fact that our existence has become so light. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. The man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. And that's crushing. 
but just like sheep and cows. Because we have lost the fall, because, because we have fallen into, into this world, this upside down, our life has more in common with the livestock than it does with the glory we were created for. Fifth, the fifth awful consequence of the fall is death. Death and disease. Verse 19 concludes with, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. I mean, they lived in the garden. In the midst of the garden was the tree of life. And it was not off limits. They had at their fingertips life that would never end. Life that was full of all the pleasures that God made man to enjoy. And to the uttermost. And they chose the one thing that said, if you do this, you will die. That's the stupidity of sin right there. They did the one thing that had a death sentence on it. And because they did, death has entered the world. Now, we live in a world that is driven by the fear of death. We run from it. We seek to deny it, but it always lives in the corners. Every birthday comes around and we want, how many more of these will I have? Every Christmas comes around and how many more of these are there? Every new ache and pain, every new visit to the, to the doctor, this horror of news lays over us. And death catches us all. There's not a single one who has escaped the call of death. As Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3, verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust, all return. And sixth, the sixth awful consequence that makes our world upside down is the separation that we have from God. Originally, the creation enjoyed friendly, neighborly, casual, frequent, constant fellowship with God. Genesis 3.8 says this, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was the existence. God was just in their midst. God was there to talk and be known. And to be enjoyed. It says that he would walk in the garden in the cool of the day. That's, that's the point in the day where it's, it's not blisteringly hot. And there's a breeze going around. And so God comes out and walks the neighborhood at that time. I think it's pretty clear that uh, that neighborhood is not in Louisiana. <laughs> but it's somewhere. It was in Eden. And that's what, they're, that's what they had. But because they have sinned, 
they are no longer able to be in the presence of God. God is holy and righteous. He cannot be in the presence of unrighteousness and sinfulness. God is light and sin is darkness and you cannot put those together. And so the response, the result was the man and the woman had to leave the garden. Not only leave the garden, they were forced out of the garden. And then a cherubim with a swinging sword was put in the way so that they could never come back. The way of Eden was gone and with it the close intimacy that they had with God. That was lost. Look at Genesis 5 verse 5. And think about this. Adam's story does not end when he's taken out of the garden. We read in Genesis 5, 5, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Adam lived 930 years. He had a handful of days in the garden, with God, with how it should have been, with all its beauty and all its perfection. And then he lived the majority of 930 years outside of the garden, with people born outside of the garden, with his kids growing up outside of the garden, and with communities growing up outside of the garden. And he is seen in the world that he lives in, how far short it is, how far, God, how far away God is, how little of the image of God is showing up in Cain, who's murdering his brother Abel. And all of these people having to taste death. And Adam knows every death, every sin, every crime, every transgression, every moment of suffering... That's because he did it. That's because of the sin. Adam's sin took the world that was very good and turned it into a pirate ship that is in rebellion from God. And every single one of us born into Adam are born onto this pirate ship. We are born into a world of rebellion. And unless we turn to know God, we are the rebellion. That is the world. It is so separated from God that the world itself is marked by rebellion. We live in a world where hath God said is the question we all have to overcome. We all have to, to be converted to know God. In the garden, knowing God was Foundational. It was like the air you breathed. That is how separated we have become. Look at these consequences. Evil, suffering, disharmony, futility and despair, death and disease, and separation. These are the six awful consequences that make our world upside down. It is not right. Our world is full of what it should not be. As we look at this, there is some personal application. First, we must recognize as we look at all that has happened from this sin, 
that the consequences of sin are often incalculable. In fact, sin, once it has been conceived and committed, takes on a life of its own. You know, I, I mentioned my, my bad habit, my sinful proclivity to tease my wife. That's a small thing, right? Shouldn't be a big deal. I mean, husbands kind of tease their wife when the dinner's not cooked that great. That, that's just what happens. Hey, you can laugh at that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, here's where it goes. My kids do it. I'm teaching my kids my sins. You want to say that it's just a small thing, but it's changing you. It's changing your relationships. And it's going to break out in places you'll never imagine. It is like a match. It's just a small little match. It's just a small little flame. But it can burn down the whole house. It can burn the whole forest. And that is what sin will do. You give it just one chance. Sin tempts us with, you won't surely die. I.e., what's the harm Have a little fun. Give yourself just a little bit of pleasure. Who's looking? Just do it, is the narrative of sin. We all want to look at sin as as small acts. It's just a little bit of pleasure. It's, It's just a little lie. It's just a little extra that I'm putting in my pocket. But the reality is, you've become a fornicator or a liar, or a thief. In these small acts, you have become a lawbreaker. You have become a despiser of God's word. And one way or another, you have violated your neighbor in all of those acts. And worse, as Adam shows us, you have forfeited your soul. There are no small consequences to sin. They get out of control and they roll and they roll and they roll. Paul says it succinctly in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. No matter how small you think the sin is, you have bought a ticket of death. Those are the wages of any and every sin. So obviously, recognizing the consequences of sin, we must fight against sin. We must not succumb. We must resist temptation. Jesus spoke bluntly when he spoke to his disciples, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
Jesus is, is not saying literally chop off parts of your body. He is saying by hyperbole, do everything to fight sin. Commit violence to yourself to stop looking at the pornography on the computer or to stop enjoying the gossip or to stop lying. Do what it takes. Be serious. Be severe with yourself. Your soul is on the line. We must hate sin. We must look at these consequences when the tempter comes into our ear and says, just a little fun. Because the consequences are disastrous. But I can't leave you with the word, just fight. There's no hope in that. If we were to take Jesus' words literally, we would all be wiggling stumps on the ground and still sinning. Because the consequences of sin go so deep. They go into the heart. And so we must fight sin with all that we have, but we also have to recognize that our fight will never be enough. We are too stained and too broken and too fallen. And that's the place that Genesis 3 wants to bring us. Because in that reality in the clarity of how upside down the world is and we are as part of it, is the only perspective that we have to see what we truly need. And that is this. Sin puts us all in need of a Savior. Sin puts us all in need of a Savior. And that is why the world has been allowed to be upside down so that it should be so clear to us that we need saved. And so there is a seventh consequence in this text. A seventh consequence that is not like the others. Isn't it fitting that in in the six days and one day of rest we end with, with six punishments and another that is not like the first? Amidst judgment, amidst God's holy right to punish the man and the woman for their transgression, he provides hope to Adam and Eve and to their children. He provides exactly one hope, exactly one. Look back at verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Before the sentence of death falls upon Adam and Eve, God provides them this hope. You will bear children. You will continue the line. And your children, your offspring, will continue to have a battle with the evil one. But someday, somewhere, at some time that you never expect, one of your children, one of the seed of the woman, 
will come. And that child will go to battle against the snake. And that battle will see that boy raised up into a man stepping and crushing the head of that snake while at the same time being wounded in the process. We are given the promise that God is going to send a child who will become the destroyer of the evil one, who will become the reverser of the upside down. This verse is the first good news. It is called the Proto-Evangelium, first good news. It is the first word of hope in the midst of the judgment. And the Bible story is all about tracing this promise, tracing this child, this seed through this people. It is the storyline of redemption. And as we read through the Bible, it seems to to never come. But then it does come. The one who comes, who becomes the seed that crushes the woman's head is none other than Jesus. God's son. Stop and think about that. God has done nothing wrong. He has been righteous. The people have done something wrong. They have been unrighteous. And yet God, in the midst of the punishment, commits himself through his son to bear the curse, to endure the upside down. Because even in his punishment, there is love and mercy that is richer than we can ever fathom. He said in judgment upon the woman and the man, I will ultimately be the curse bearer in my own son. God enters the upside down to overcome the upside down by bearing the consequences of the upside down. Look at this. The son comes. He takes the snake's worst bite. The bite of a nail through the ankle. But he does that to crush and deliver us from evil. The son comes. He suffers. He bears the most extreme pain and suffering that this world can imagine. He suffers in our place to bring us healing. He takes all of the violence and disharmony and hostility of this world upon himself to bring us peace. He endures being forsaken, crying out, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, where are you? So that we would never face ultimate despair. He dies. He breathes his last. He gives up his spirit to cancel death's power. Finally, he bears the punishment for sin to bring us back to God. All of the awful consequences of the fall 
the Son bears and bears them to the uttermost in our place on the cross. And so we are told when his work is finished and he is risen from the grave, Paul says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you see as we see the curses and all the consequences of the fall, that we must end praising God because God's grace to save goes as far as the curse is found. And so we end with these words in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. Therefore, now in Christ, They are before the throne of God, no longer separated, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christ is our only hope. He brings to an upside down world a gospel that if you put your hope in it, will bring you into the right side up. Where you will enjoy a new creation, better than the first. The question I leave with you, have you set your hope upon Christ alone?